Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Thomas Merton's The Seven-Story Mountain. Volume 14, Chapter 2, Part 4. I discovered that the young man with black hair and dungarees was a postulant. He was entering the monastery that day. That evening at Complain, we who were standing up in the tribune at the back of the church could see him down there in the choir, in his dark secular clothes, which made him easy to pick out in the shadows among the uniform white of the novices and monks. For a couple of days it was that way. Practically the first thing you noticed when you looked at the choir was this young man in secular clothes among all the monks. Then suddenly we saw him no more. He was in white. They had given him an oblate's habit, and you could not pick him out from the rest. The waters had closed over his head, and he was submerged in the community. He was lost. The world would hear of him no more. He had drowned in our society and become a Cistercian. Up in the guest house, somebody who happened to know who he was told me a few facts about him, by way of a kind of obituary. I don't know if I got them straight or not, but he was a convert. He came from a rather wealthy family in Pennsylvania and had gone to one of those big eastern universities and had been on vacation in the Bahama Islands when he had bumped into a priest who was talking to him about the faith and converted him. When he was baptized, his parents were so incensed that they cut him off, as the saying goes, without a penny. For a while, he had worked as a pilot for one of those big airlines, flying planes to South America. But now that was all over. He had gone out of the world, requiescat in pace. The secular priest with the white hair was more of a mystery. He was a big bluff fellow with some kind of accent which led me to place him as a Belgium. He was not entering the community, but it seemed he had been there in the guest house for some time. In the afternoons, he put on a pair of overalls and went about painting benches and other furniture, and he laughed and talked with the others. As he talked, his talk seemed strange to me. In a place like this, you would expect someone to say something, at least indirectly, about religion, and yet that was a subject on which he seemed to be inarticulate. The only thing he seemed to know anything about was strength, strength and work. At the dinner table, he rolled up his sleeve and said, Ha, oh, look at that muscle. And he flexed huge biceps for the edification of the retreatants. I found out afterwards that he was under ecclesiastical censure and was in the monastery doing penance. The poor man, for some reason or another, had not lived as a good priest. In the end, his mistakes had caught up with him. He had come into contact with some schismatics in a sect known as the Old Catholics, and these people had persuaded him to leave the church and come over to them, and when he did so, they made him an archbishop. I suppose he enjoyed the dignity and novelty of it for a while, but the whole thing was obviously silly. So he gave it up and came back, and now here he was in the monastery, serving Mass every morning for a young Trappist priest who scarcely had the oils of his ordination dry on his hands. As the week went on, the house began to fill, and the evening before Holy Thursday, there must have been some twenty-five or thirty retreatants in the monastery, men, young and old, from all quarters of the country. Half a dozen students had hitchhiked down from Notre Dame with glasses and earnest talk about the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas. There was a psychiatrist from Chicago who said he came down every Easter, and there were three or four pious men who turned out to be friends and benefactors of the monastery, quiet, rather solemn personages. They assumed a sort of command over the other guests. They had a right to. They practically lived here in this guest house. In fact, they had a kind of quasi-vocation all their own. They belonged to that special class of men raised up by God to support orphanages and convents and monasteries and build hospitals and feed the poor. On the whole, it is a way to sanctity that is sometimes too much despised. It sometimes implies a more than ordinary humility in men who come to think that the monks and the nuns they assist are creatures of another world. God will show us at the latter day that many of them were better men than the monks they supported. But the man I talked to most was a Carmelite priest who had wandered about the face of the earth even more than I had. If I wanted to hear something about monasteries, he could tell me about hundreds of them that he had seen. 
We walked in the guesthouse garden in the sun, watching the fighting in the rich yellow tulips, and he told me about the Carthusians in England at Parkminster. There were no longer any pure hermits or anchorites in the world, but the Carthusians were the ones who had gone the farthest, climbed the highest on the mountain of isolation that lifted them above the world and concealed them in God. We could see the Cistercians here going out to work in a long line with shovels tucked under their arms with a most quaint formality. But a Carthusian worked alone, in his cell, in his own garden or workshop, isolated. These monks slept in a common dormitory. The Carthusian slept in a hidden cell. These men ate together while someone read aloud to them in their refectory. The Carthusian ate alone, sitting in the window alcove of his cell, with no one to speak to him but God. All day long and all night long, a Cistercian was with his brothers. All day long and all night long, except for the offices and the choir and other intervals, the Carthusian was with God alone. O Beata Salatudo! The words were written on the walls of this Trappist guesthouse, too. O Beata Salatudo! O Sola Beatitudo! There was one thing the Cistercians had in their favor. The Carthusians had a kind of recreation in which they went out for walks together and conversed with one another to prevent the possibilities of strain that might go with too uncompromising a solitude, too much of that sola beatitudo. Could there be too much of it, I wondered? But the Trappist, with his unbroken silence, at least as far as conversations were concerned, had one advantage. And yet what did it matter which one was the most perfect order? Neither of them was for me. Had I not been told definitely enough a year ago that I had no vocation to any religious order? All these comparisons were nothing but fuel for the fire of that interior anguish, that hopeless desire for what I could not have, for what was out of reach. The only question was not which order attracted me more, but which one tortured me more with a solitude and silence and contemplation that could never be mine. Far from wondering whether I had a vocation to either one, or from instituting a comparison between them, I was not even allowed the luxury of speculation on such a subject. It was all out of the question. However, since the Carthusians were, after all, far away, it was what I had before my eyes that tortured me the most. The Carthusians were more perfect, perhaps, and therefore more to be desired, but they were doubly out of reach because of the war and because of what I thought was my lack of vocation. If I had any supernatural common sense, I would have realized that a retreat like this would be the best time to take that problem by the horns and overcome it, not by my own efforts and meditations, but by prayer and by the advice of an experienced priest. And where would I find anyone more experienced in such matters than in a monastery of contemplatives? But what was the matter with me? I suppose I had taken such a beating from the misunderstandings and misapprehensions that had arisen in my mind by the time the Capuchin got through with me in his confessional the year before that I literally feared to reopen the subject at all. There was something in my bones that told me that I ought to find out whether my intense desire to lead this kind of life in some monastery was an illusion. But the old scars were not yet healed and my whole being shrank from another such scourging. That was my holy week, that mute, hopeless, interior struggle. It was my share in the Passion of Christ, which began that year in the middle of the night with the first strangled cry of the vigils of Holy Thursday. It was a tremendous thing to hear the terrible cries of Jeremiah's resounding along the walls of that dark church buried in the country. Attend and see if there will be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. From above he hath set fire into my bones and hath chastised me. He hath spread a net for my feet. He hath turned me back. He hath made me desolate, wasted with sorrow all the day long. It was not hard to realize whose words these were not difficult to detect the voice of Christ in the liturgy of his church, crying out in the sorrows of his passion, which were now beginning to be relived, as they are relived each year in the churches of Christendom. 
At the end of the office, one of the monks came solemnly out and extinguished the sanctuary light, and the sudden impression froze all hearts with darkness and foreboding. The day went on solemnly, the little hours being chanted in a strange, mighty, and tremendously sorrowful tone, plain as its three monotonously recurring notes could possibly make it be, a lament that was as rough and clean as stone. After the gloria of the conventual mass, the organ was at last altogether silent, and the silence only served to bring out the simplicity and strength of the music chanted by the choir. After the general communion distributed to the long, slow line of all the priests and monks and brothers and guests, and the procession of the Blessed Sacrament to the altar of repose, slow and sad, with lights and the pange lingua, came the mondi, the mandatum, when, in the cloister, the monks washed the feet of some seventy or eighty poor men and kissed their feet and pressed money into their hands. And through all this, especially in the mandatum, when I saw them at close range, I was amazed at the way these monks, who were evidently just plain young Americans from the factories and colleges and farms and high schools of the various states, were nevertheless absorbed and transformed in the liturgy. The thing that was most impressive was their absolute simplicity. They were concerned with one thing only, doing the things they had to do, singing what they had to sing, bowing and kneeling and so on when it was prescribed, and doing it as well as they could, without fuss or flourish or display. It was all utterly simple and unvarnished and straightforward, and I don't think I had ever seen anything anywhere so unaffected, so unself-conscious as these monks. There was not a shadow of anything that could be called parade or display. They did not seem to realize that they were being watched. And as a matter of fact, I can say from experience that they did not know it at all. In choir, it's very rare that you even realize that there are any or many or few seculars of the house. And if you do realize it, it makes no difference. The presence of other people becomes something that has absolutely no significance to the monk when he is at prayer. It is something neutral, dull, like the air, like the atmosphere, like the weather. All these external things recede into the distance. Remotely, you are aware of it all, but you do not advert to it. You're not conscious of it, any more than the eye registers with awareness, the things on which it is not focused, although they may be within range of its vision. Certainly one thing the monk does not or cannot realize, in effect, which these liturgical functions performed by a group of such have upon those who see them. The lessons, the truths, the incidents and values portrayed are simply overwhelming. For this effect to be achieved, it is necessary that each monk as an individual performer be absolutely lost, ignored, overlooked. And yet, what a strange admission to say that men were admirable, worthy of honor, perfect in proportion as they disappeared into a crowd and made themselves unnoticed by even ceasing to be aware of their own existence and their own acts. Excellence here was in proportion to obscurity. The one who was best was the one who was least observed, least distinguished. Only faults and mistakes draw attention to the individual. The logic of the Cistercian life was, then, the complete opposite to the logic of the world, in which men put themselves forward so that the most excellent is the one who stands out, the one who is eminent above the rest, who attracts attention. What is the answer to this paradox? Simply that the monk, in hiding himself from the world, becomes not less himself, not less of a person, but more of a person, more truly and perfectly himself for his personality and individuality are perfected in that true order, the spiritual, interior order of union with God, the principle of all perfection. Omnis gloria ejus filiae regus ab intus. The logic of worldly success rests on a fallacy. The strange error that our perfection depends on the thoughts and opinions and applause of other men. A weird life it is indeed 
to be living always in somebody else's imagination, as if that were the only place in which one could at last become real. With all these things before me, day and night, for two days, I finally came to the afternoon of Good Friday. After a tremendous morning of ten hours of practically uninterrupted chanting and psalmody, the monks, exhausted, had disappeared from the scene of their gutted church with its stripped altars and its empty tabernacle wide open to the four winds. The monastery was silent, inert. I could not pray. I could not read any more. I got Brother Matthew to let me out the front gate on the pretext that I wanted to take a picture of the monastery, and then I went for a walk along the enclosure wall, down the road, past the mill, and around the back of the buildings, across a creek and down a narrow valley with a barn and some woods on one side, and the monastery on a bluff on the other. The sun was warm, the air quiet. Somewhere a bird sang. In a sense, it was a relief to be out of the atmosphere of intense prayer that had pervaded those buildings for the last two days. The pressure was too heavy for me. My mind was too full. Now my feet took me slowly along a rocky road under the stunted cedar trees with violets growing up everywhere between the cracks on the rock. Out here I could think, and yet I could not get to any conclusions. But there was one thought running around and around in my mind. To be a monk. To be a monk. I gazed at the brick building which I took to be the novitiate. It stood on top of a high rampart of retaining wall that made it look like a prison or a citadel. I saw the enclosure wall, the locked gates. I thought of the hundreds of pounds of spiritual pressure compressed and concentrated within those buildings and weighing down in the heads of the monks, and I thought, it would kill me. I turned my eyes to the trees, to the woods. I looked up the valley, back in the direction from which I had come, at the high wooded hill that closed off the prospect. I thought, I'm a Franciscan. That is my kind of spirituality, to be out in the woods, under the trees. I walked back across the trestle, over the sunny, narrow creek, embracing my fine new error. After all I had seen of the Franciscans, where did I get the idea that they spent their time under the trees? They often lived in schools, in towns, cities. And these monks, on the contrary, did go out every day and work in the very fields and woods that I was looking at. Human nature has a way of making very specious arguments to suit its own cowardice and lack of generosity, and so now I was trying to persuade myself that the contemplative, cloistered life was not for me, because there was not enough fresh air. Nevertheless, back in the monastery, I read St. Bernard's Di Diligendo Deo, and I read the life of a Trappist monk who had died in a monastery in France, ironically enough, in my own part of France, near Toulouse, Father Joseph Cassant. The retreat master in one of his conferences told us a long story of a man who had once come to Gethsemane and who had not been able to make up his mind to become a monk and had fought and prayed about it for days. Finally, with the story, he had made the Stations of the Cross and at the final station had prayed fervently to be allowed the grace of dying in the order. You know, said the retreat master, they say that no petition you ask at the 14th station is ever refused. In any case, this man finished his prayer and went back to his room, and in an hour or so he collapsed, and they just had time to receive his request for admission to the order when he died. He lies buried in the monk's cemetery in the Oblate's habit. And so, about the last thing I did before leaving Gethsemane was to do the Stations of the Cross and to ask, with my heart in my throat, at the 14th station, for the grace of a vocation to the Trappists, if it were pleasing to God. Part 5 Back in the world I felt like a man that had come down from the rare atmosphere of a very high mountain. When I got to Louisville, I had already been up for four hours or so, and my day was getting on toward noon, so to speak, 
but I found that everybody else was just getting up and having breakfast and going to work. How strange it was to see people walking around as if they had something important to do, running after buses, reading newspapers, lighting cigarettes. How futile all their haste and anxiety seemed to me. My heart sank within me, and I thought, What am I getting into? Is this the sort of life I myself have been living in all these years? At a street corner, I happened to look up and caught sight of an electric sign on top of a two-story building. It read, Clown Cigarettes. I turned and fled from the alien and lunatic street and found my way into the nearby cathedral and knelt and prayed and did the Stations of the Cross. Afraid of the spiritual pressure in that monastery? Was that what I had said the other day? How I longed to be back there now. Everything here in the world outside was insipid, insane. There was only one place I knew of where there was any true order. Yet how could I go back? Did I not know that I really had no vocation? It was the same old story again. I got on the train for Cincinnati and for New York. Back at St. Bonaventure's, where the spring I had already met in Kentucky finally caught up with me again several weeks later, I walked in the woods and the sun under the pale blossoms of the cherry trees. The fight went on in my mind. By now, the problem had resolved itself into one practical issue. Why don't I consult somebody about the whole question? Why don't I write to the abbot of Gethsemane and tell him about my own case and ask him his opinion? More practical still, here at St. Bonaventure's, there was one priest whom I had come to know well during this last year, a wise and good philosopher, Father Philotheus. We had been going over some texts of St. Bonaventure and Duns Scotus together, and I knew I could trust him with the most involved spiritual problem. Why didn't I ask him? There was one absurd, crazy thing that held me up. It was a kind of blind impulse confused, obscure, irrational. I could hardly identify it as it actually was because its true nature escaped me. It was so blind, so elemental. But it amounted to a vague, subconscious fear that I would once and for all be told that I definitely had no vocation. It was the fear of an ultimate refusal. Perhaps what I wanted was to maintain myself in an equivocal, indefinite position in which I would be free to dream about entering the monastery without having the actual responsibility of doing so and of embracing the real hardships of Cistercian life. If I was asked advice and was told I had no vocation, then the dream would be over. And if I was told I had a vocation, then I would have to walk right into the reality. And all this was complicated by that other dream, that of the Carthusians. If there had been a Carthusian monastery in America, things would have been much simpler. But there is still no such place in the whole hemisphere, and there was no chance of crossing the Atlantic. France was full of Germans, and the charter house in Sussex had been bobbed flat to the ground. And so I walked under the trees, full of indecision, praying for light. In the midst of this conflict, I suddenly got a notion which shows that I was not very far advanced in the spiritual life. I thought of praying to God to let me know what I was going to do, or what I should do, or what the solution would be by showing it to me in the scriptures. It was the old business of opening the book and putting your finger down blindly on the page and taking the words thus designated as an answer to your question. Sometimes the saints have done this, and much more often a lot of superstitious old women have done it. I'm not a saint, and I do not doubt that there may have been an element of superstition in my action. But anyway, I made my prayer and opened the book and put my finger down definitely on the page and said to myself, whatever it is, this is it. I looked and the answer practically floored me. The words were, Ece eris tassens. Behold, thou shalt be silent. It was the 20th verse of the first chapter of St. Luke where the angel was talking to St. John the Baptist's father, Zachary. Tassens. There could not have been a closer word to Trappist in the whole Bible. As far as I was concerned, for to me, as well as to most other people, the word Trappist stood for silence. 
However, I immediately found myself in difficulties which show how silly it is to make an oracle out of books. As soon as I looked at the context, I observed that Zachary was being reproved for asking too many questions. Did the whole context apply to me too? And was I therefore reproved? And therefore, was the news to be that I was getting completely mixed up? Besides, when I reflected, I realized I had not put the question in any clear terms, so that, as a matter of fact, I had forgotten just what I had asked. I did not know whether I had asked God to tell me his will or merely to announce to me what would happen in the future in point of fact. By the time I got myself completely tied up in these perplexities, the information I had asked for was more of a nuisance and a greater cause of uncertainty than my ignorance. In fact, I was almost as ignorant as I was before, except for one thing. Deep down, underneath all the perplexity, I had a kind of conviction that this was a genuine answer, that the problem was indeed someday going to end up that way. I was going to be a Trappist. But as far as making any practical difference then and there, it was no help at all. I continued to walk in the woods and the pastures and in the old tank lots at the wood's edge down toward the radio station. When I was out there alone, I would go about full of nostalgia for the Trappist monastery, singing over and over, Iam Lucis Orto Sidere, on that ferial tone. It was a matter of deep regret to me that I could not remember the wonderful Salve Regina with which the monks ended all their days, chanting in the darkness to the Mother of God that long antiphon, the most stately and most beautiful and most stirring thing that was ever written, that was ever sung. I walked along the roads in Two Mile Valley, in Four Mile Valley, in the late afternoons, in the early evenings, in the dusk, and along the river where it was quiet, wishing I could sing that Salve Regina. And I could remember nothing but the first two or three noims. After that, I had to invent, and my invention was not very good. It sounded awful. So did my voice. So I gave up trying to sing, humiliated and sorrowful and complaining a little to the Mother of God. The weeks went on, and the weather began to show signs of summer when John Paul suddenly arrived at St. Bonaventure's on his way back from Mexico. The back seat of his Buick was full of Mexican records and pictures and strange objects and a revolver and big colored baskets, and he was looking relatively well and happy. We spent a couple of afternoons driving around through the hills and talking, or just driving and not talking. He had been to the Yucatan, as he had planned, and he had been to Puebla, and he had just missed being in an earthquake in Mexico City. And he had lent a lot of money to some gent who owned a ranch near San Luis Potosi. On the same ranch, he had shot with his revolver a poisonous snake some six feet long. Do you expect to get that money back, I asked him. Oh, if he doesn't pay me, I'll have a share in his ranch, said John Paul without concern. But at the moment, he was heading back toward Ithaca. I could not be sure whether he was going to go to Cornell Summer School and finally get his degree, or whether he was going to take some more flying lessons, or what he was going to do. I asked him if he had kept in touch with this priest he knew there. Oh, yes, sure. I asked him what he thought about becoming a Catholic. You know, I've thought about that a little. Why don't you go to the priest and ask him to give you some instructions? I think I will. But I could tell from the tone of his voice that he was as indefinite as he was sincere. He meant well, but he would probably do nothing about it. I said I would give him a copy of the catechism I had, but when I went to my room I couldn't find it. And so John Paul and his big shiny Buick, built low on its chassis, drove off at great speed toward Ithaca with his revolver and his Mexican baskets. In the gay days of early June, at the time of examinations, I was beginning a new book. It was called The Journal of My Escape from the Nazis. And it was the kind of book that I liked to write, full of double talk and all kinds of fancy ideas that sounded like Franz Kafka. One reason why it was satisfying was that it fulfilled a kind of psychological necessity that had been pent up in me all through the last stages of the war because of my sense of identification by guilt with what was going on in England. So I put myself there and telescoping my own past with the air raids that were actually taking place as its result, I wrote this journal. 
and as I say, it was something I needed to write, although I often went off at a tangent, and the thing got away up more than one blind alley. And so absorbed in this work and in final examinations and in preparation for the coming summer school, I let the question of the Trappist vocation drop into the background, although I could not drop it altogether. I said to myself, after summer school, I will go and make a retreat with the Trappists in Canada at Our Lady of the Lake, outside Montreal. Chapter 3. The Sleeping Volcano In the cool summer nights, when the road behind the powerhouse and the laundry and the garages was dark and empty, and you could barely see the hills outlined in the dark against the stars, I used to walk out there in the smell of the fields towards the dark cow barns. There was a grove along the west side of the football field, and in that grove were two shrines, one to the little flower and the other a grotto for Our Lady of Lourdes. But the grotto wasn't complicated enough to be really ugly, the way those artificial grottos usually are. It was nice to pray out there in the dark, with the wind sighing in the high pine branches. Sometimes you could hear one other sound, the laughter of all the nuns and clerics and friars, and the rest of the summer school students sitting in Alumni Hall, which was at the end of the grove, and enjoying the movies which were shown there every Thursday night. On those nights, the whole campus was deserted and the Alumni Hall crowded. I felt as if I were the only one in the place who did not go to the movies, except for the boy at the telephone switchboard in the dormitory building. He had to stay there. He was being paid for that. Even my friend... Father Philotheus, who was editing 14th century philosophical manuscripts and who had taught me St. Bonaventure's way to God according to the Itinerarium, and with whom I had studied parts of Scotus's De Primo Principio, even went to the movies in the hope that there would be a Mickey Mouse. But as soon as all the comedies were over, he left. He could not make anything much out of all those other dramas and adventures. Oh, the gay laughter of the sisters and the clerics and that old fire trap of a red building. I suppose they deserved to have a little entertainment. At least the sisters deserved it. I know that many of them got some severe headaches from the course I was giving in bibliography and methods of research. The traditional way of teaching methods of research was to throw out a lot of odd names and facts to the class without any clue as to where they came from and tell them to all come back the next day with a complete identification. So I asked them things like, who is Philip Sparrow? Or, what Oxford College has on its coat of arms a pelican, volning herself proper? To find out these things, which I only gave them because I already knew them myself, they had to break their heads over all kinds of reference books, and thus got practical training in methods of research. But the sisters always came back with the right answers, although they sometimes had circles under their eyes. The clerics had the right answers, but no circles, because they got the answers from the sisters. In the back of the room sat a priest who belonged to some teaching order in Canada and who seldom got the answers at all, even from the sisters. He just sat there and gave me black looks. So, on the whole, it was good that they should relax and laugh and sit in those rows of ancient and uncomfortable chairs, indulging their innocent and unsophisticated taste for carefully selected movies. I walked along the empty field and thought of their life, sheltered and innocent and safe. A number of them were in many ways still children, especially the nuns. They looked out at you from under various kinds of caps and coifs and blinkers and whatnot they had on with round, earnest eyes, sober, clear eyes of little girls, yet you knew they had responsibilities and many of them had suffered a lot of things you could only half-guess at. But it was all absorbed in quiet simplicity and resignation, and the most you could observe, even in the most harassed of them, was that they looked a little tired. Perhaps some of the older ones, too, were a trifle too tight-lipped, a trifle too grim, but even then some of the old ones still had that little girl's simplicity in their look, not yet altogether extinct. Their life was secure, it was walled in by ramparts of order and decorum and stability, in the social as much as in the religious sphere. But they nevertheless all had to work hard, much harder than most of their relatives outside in the world. 
Most of the sisters had long hours in their schoolrooms and then other things to do besides that. I suppose they had their fair share of cooking and washing clothes and scrubbing floors when they were in proper community. Yet even then, was not the relative comfort of their life apt to make them impervious to certain levels of human experience and human misery? I wondered if they were aware of all the degrees of suffering and degradation which, in the slums, in the war zones, in the moral jungles of our century, were crying out to the church for help and to heaven for vengeance against injustice. The answer to that would probably be some of them were, some of them were not, but that they all sincerely wanted to be doing something about these things, if they could. But it was true, they were sheltered, protected, separated, in large measure from the frightful realities that had a claim upon their attention if they loved Christ. But then, why should I separate myself from them? I was in the same condition. Perhaps I was slightly more conscious of it than some of them, but all of us were going to have an occasion to remember this paradox, this accusing paradox that those who are poor for the love of Christ are often only poor in a purely abstract sense, and that poverty which is designed, among other things, to throw them into the midst of the real poor for the salvation of souls, only separates them from the poor in a safe and hermetically sealed economic stability, full of comfort and complacency. One night there came to those nuns and to those clerics and to St. Bonaventure in general, and myself in particular, someone sent from God for the special purpose of waking us up and turning our eyes in that direction, which we all tended so easily to forget in the safety and isolation of our country's stronghold lost in the upstate hills. It was right, of course, that my interior life should have been concerned first of all with my own salvation. It must be that way. It is no profit for a man to gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his own soul. And anyway, one who is loving his own soul is not going to be able to do much to save the souls of others, except in the case where he may be giving out sacraments which work, as they say, ex opere operato, without any intrinsic dependence on the sanctity of the one dispensing them. But now it was necessary that I take more account of obligations to other men, more to the very fact that I was myself a man among men, and a sharer in their sins and in their punishments and in their miseries and in their hopes. No man goes to heaven all by himself, alone. I was walking around the football field, as usual, in the dark, the alumni hall was full of lights. It was not the night for movies. There was some speaker there. I had not paid much attention to the list of speakers that had been invited to come and stand on the platform and tell the clerics and sisters all about some important topic. I knew there would be one from the Catholic worker and that David Goldstein, who was a converted Jew and ran an organization for street preaching by laymen, was invited to speak. And I knew Baroness de Hoyk, who was uh, working among the Negroes in Harlem, was also going to come. As far as I knew, this night was one listed for David Goldstein, and I hesitated for a moment, wondering whether I wanted to go and hear him or not. At first I thought, no, and started off toward the grove. But then I thought, I'll at least look inside the door. Going up the steps to the second floor of the hall where the theater was, I could hear someone's voice speaking with great vehemence. However, it was not a man's voice. I stepped into the room, and there was a woman standing on the stage. Now a woman standing all alone on a stage in front of a big lighted hall without any decoration or costume or special lighted effects, just in the glare of the hall lights is at a disadvantage. It's not very likely that she will make much of an impression, and this particular woman was dressed in clothes that were nondescript and plain and even poor, she had no artful way of walking either, no fancy tricks, nothing for the gallery. And yet as soon as I came in the door, the impression she was making in that room full of nuns and clerics and priests and various lay people pervaded the place with such power that it nearly knocked me backwards down the stairs which I had just ascended. She had a strong voice and strong convictions and strong things to say, and she was saying them in the simplest, most unvarnished, bluntest possible kind of talk, and with such uncompromising directness that it stunned you. You could feel right away that most of her audience was hanging on her words, and that some of them were frightened, and that one or two were angry, but that everybody was intent on the things she had to say. 
and I realized it was the Baroness. I had heard something about her and her work in Harlem because she was well-known and admired in Corpus Christi Parish where I had been baptized. Father Ford was always sending her things they needed down there on 135th Street and Lenox Avenue. What she was saying boiled down to this. Catholics are worried about communism, and they have a right to be, because the communist revolution aims, among other things, at wiping out the church. But few Catholics stop to think that communism would make very little progress in the world, or none at all, if Catholics really lived up to their obligations and really did the things that Christ came to earth to teach them to do. That is, if they really loved one another and saw Christ in one another and lived as saints and did something to win justice for the poor. For she said if Catholics were able to see Harlem as they ought to see it, with the eyes of faith, they would not be able to stay away from such a place. Hundreds of priests and lay people would give up everything to go there and try to do something to relieve the tremendous misery, the poverty, sickness, degradation, and dereliction of a race that was being crushed and perverted, morally and physically, under the burden of a colossal economic injustice. Instead of seeing Christ suffering in his members, and instead of going to help him, who said, Whatsoever you did to the least of these my brethren, you did it to me, we preferred our own comfort. We averted our eyes from such a spectacle because it made us feel uneasy. The thought of so much dirt nauseated us, and we never stopped to think that we, perhaps, might be partly responsible for it. And so people continued to die of starvation and disease in those evil tenements full of vice and cruelty, while those who did not condescend to consider their problems held banquets in the big hotels downtown to discuss the race situation in a big rosy cloud of hot air. If Catholics, she said, were able to see Harlem as they should see it, with the eyes of faith, as a challenge to their love of Christ, as a test of their Christianity, the communists would be able to do nothing there. But on the contrary, in Harlem the communists were strong. They were bound to be strong. They were doing some of the things, performing some of the works of mercy that Christians should be expected to do. If some Negro workers lose their jobs and are in danger of starving, the communists are there to divide their own food with them and to take up the defense of their cause. If some Negro is dying and is refused admission to a hospital, the communists show up and get someone to take care of him, and furthermore to see to it that the injustice is publicized all over the city. If a Negro family is evicted because they can't pay the rent, the communists are there and find shelter for them, even if they have to divide their own bedding with them. And every time they do these things, more and more people begin to say, See, the communists really do love the poor. They really are trying to do something for us. What they say must be right. There's no one else who cares anything about our interests. There's nothing better for us to do than to get in with them and work with them for this revolution they're talking about. Do the Catholics have a labor policy? Have the popes said anything about these problems and their encyclicals? The communists know more about those encyclicals than the average Catholic. Rerum Novarum and Quadrigesimo Anno are discussed and analyzed in their public meetings, and the Reds end up appealing to their audience. Now we ask you, do the Catholics practice these things? Have you ever seen any Catholic down here trying to do anything for you? When this firm and that firm locked out so many hundreds of Negro workers, whose side did the Catholic papers take? Don't you know the Catholic Church is just a front for capitalism, and all that talk about the poor is just hypocrisy? What do they care about the poor? What have they ever done to help you? Even their priests in Harlem go outside and hire white men when they want somebody to repaint their churches. Don't you know the Catholics are laughing at you behind their hands while they pocket the rent for the lousy tenements you have to live in? The Baroness was born in Russia. She had been a young girl at the time of the October Revolution. She had seen half her family shot. She had seen priests fall under the bullets of the Reds and she had had to escape from Russia the way it is done in the movies, but with all the misery and hardship which the movies do not show, and none of the glamour which is their specialty. She had ended up in New York without a cent, working in a laundry, 
She had been brought up a Roman Catholic, and the experiences she had gone through, instead of destroying her faith, intensified and deepened it, until the Holy Ghost planted fortitude in the midst of her soul like an unshakable rock. I never saw anyone so calm, so certain, so peaceful in her absolute confidence in God. Catherine de Hoyck is a person in every way big, and the bigness is not merely physical. It comes from the Holy Ghost dwelling constantly within her, moving her in all she does. When she was working in that laundry, down somewhere near 14th Street, and sitting on the curbstone, eating her lunch with the other girls who worked there, the sense of her own particular vocation dawned upon her. It was the call of an apostolate, not new, but so old that it is traditional as that of the first Christians. An apostolate of a lay woman in the world, among workers, herself a worker and poor, an apostolate of personal contacts, of word, and above all, of example. There was to be nothing special about it, nothing that savored of a religious order, no special rule, no distinctive habit. She and those who joined her would simply be poor. There was no choice on that score, for they were all ready. But they would embrace their poverty and the life of the proletariat in all its misery and insecurity and dead, drab monotony. They would live and work in the slums and lose themselves in that huge anonymous mass of the forgotten and the derelict for the only purpose of living the complete and integral Christian life in that environment, and that is loving those around them, sacrificing themselves for those around them, and spreading the gospel and the truth of Christ most of all by being saints, by living in union with him, by being full of his Holy Ghost, his charity. As she spoke of these things in that hall, and to all these nuns and clerics, she could not help but move them all deeply, because what they were hearing, it was too patent to be missed, was nothing but the pure Franciscan ideal, the pure essence of the Franciscan apostolate of poverty, without the vows taken by the friars minor, and, for the honor of those who heard her, most of them had the sense and the courage to recognize this fact and to see that she was, in a sense, a much better Franciscan than they were. She was, as a matter of fact, in the Third Order, and that made me feel quite proud of my own scapular, which was hiding under my shirt. It reminded me that the thing was not altogether without meaning or without possibilities. So the Baroness had gone to Harlem. She stepped out of the subway with a typewriter and a few dollars and some clothes in a bag. When she went to one of the tenements and asked to look at a room, the man said to her, Ma'am, you don't want to live here. Yes, I do, she said and added by way of explanation, I'm Russian. Russian, said the man, that's different. Walk right in. In other words, he had thought she was a communist. That was the way that Friendship House had begun. Now they were occupying four or five stores on both sides of 135th Street and maintained a library, and recreation room, and clothing room. The Baroness had an apartment of her own, and those of her helpers who lived there all the time, also had a place on 135th Street. There were more girls than men staying with her in Harlem. When the meeting was over, and when the Baroness had answered, all the usual objections like, what if some Negro wanted to marry your sister, or you for that matter? I went up and spoke to her. And the next day I ran into her on the path in front of the library, when I was going with an armful of books to teach a class on Dante's Divine Comedy. These two times were the only chance I had to speak with her, but I said, Would it be all right if I came to Friendship House and did a little work with you there after all this is over? Sure, she said. Come on. But seeing me with my arms full of those books, maybe she didn't believe me.